Thank you, Shamrock. Well, we are in the outdoor journey, and I am Pastor Anthony, as she said. And we're going to start with the catchphrase. Let me just do this. The catchphrase for the outdoor journey, every journey has one, is as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus now sends us. And of course, our verse comes from John. John 20, 19-22, Jesus has just been resurrected, the apostles are hanging out, hiding out, and he appears in the room, this is that account. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, and again Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So this whole series of the Outward Journey is how do we relate to the world as people that have been sent on a mission by Jesus? How do we further God's plan of redemption in the world? Does that make sense? Yeah. And this month, we're looking specifically at how Paul did it. Paul was really the first large-scale missionary. People had been going out here and there before Paul, but Paul was really the guy that got tasked with, hey, you know, ever since I started this world, I wanted all people to know me, and now is the time. Go out and get him, Tiger. And that was Paul that got that job. So we're going to look at how exactly he did that by looking at Acts 16 to 18. And this is a, a, the second missionary journey of Paul. I believe, and I'm having doubts, this isn't the time to doubt that. Yes, it's the second missionary journey, if I'm wrong, for an email. But what was constant about Paul's approach in the cities that he visited, and what changed? What were the constants, and what were the variables? I want to look at this and look at how he did what he did. He's going specifically to found churches. The Lord has said, go out and start my church. Go tell people about me. Make disciples. Baptize them in my name. And Paul says, yeah, we're going to do this. And he goes out into the Roman world, into some vastly different places, and does it. We're going to look at what stays the same and what was open for change. Does that sound good? Excellent. Excellent? My goodness. Excellent. I will enunciate my syllables. <laughs> Let's start out with a long quote from one of my favorite guys, David Guzik, who I read on the Blue Letter Bible app. Amen. Hallelujah. This is from David Guzik. For Paul, the message of the cross was the gospel. What was the, what was the gospel for Paul? The message of the cross. Okay, continuing. It was impossible for the apostle to preach the gospel without presenting the message of the cross. So preaching a high moral standard is not preaching the gospel. Preaching the universal fatherhood of God is not preaching the gospel. And preaching the universal brotherhood of man is not preaching the gospel. The gospel is the message of the cross. David Guzik, and that's on the commentary to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which I go to later. This is awesome. This is what Paul was building every church that he built on, the message of the cross. And so this is a fitting place to start my message as the first thing that does not change. This is a constant. The constant is the gospel, and the gospel is the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at three cities in this message. We're going to look at Philippi, Athens, and we're going to look at Corinth. And we're going to kind of compare and contrast how Paul did his thing. But this base, the gospel, is in all three places large and in charge. Let's look at how. 
first stop is Philippi. Paul shows up into Philippi, and uh, this is what happens in Acts 16.10. After Paul had seen the vision, he gets a vision of a guy pleading for help. And Paul says, aha, this could be a sign that I'm supposed to go over there. Rightly interprets that highly ambiguous vision. That's some pretty clear leadership, actually. So they get ready, and they go to the region of Macedonia, and they conclude that God has called them to go there to preach the gospel. We are going there to tell people about Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. Acts 16, 17. There's this interesting character in Philippi that's following Paul around. It's a demon-possessed lady, but she's actually shouting out, These men are messengers of the Most High God telling you the way to be saved. Interesting, interesting account. But in Acts 16, 17, it says this. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Sounds good. We'll find out how, how Paul dealt with her later. But it's very clear. He's preaching the gospel. He's telling people the way to be saved. And later on, he says this to a jailer. The jailer, and we'll get to this larger story in a minute. The jailer says to Paul, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Saul and his buddy replied, Paul and his buddy replied, excuse me, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, it was after midnight, the jailer took them to wash their wounds. How did they get wounds? We'll get to that. <laughs> then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Why are we going to Philippi? Well, we're going there to preach the gospel. Even the demons know why they've come. They've come to tell people the way to get saved. When the interesting thing happens that we're going to talk about in a second, the jailer runs in, and the first thing he asks Paul is, hey, how do I get saved? And they tell him about Jesus. In Philippi, <laughs> the church was founded on the message of the cross and Jesus Christ. Seems pretty easy. Let's move on to Athens. What happens there? Maybe he preached something different. It's a different city, but we see that that's actually not the case. Acts 17, 18. Paul's in the marketplace, and it says this. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And that's an interesting word, babbler. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. David Busick seems to be right. Wherever Paul goes, he's founding the church on the constant of the gospel. Every church that he started was rooted in this. Philippi, Athens, and now let's look at Corinth. This is interesting. Because in Acts 18, it doesn't explicitly say that Paul is preaching Jesus or, or something like that. We have this kind of ambiguous phrase. In Acts 18.4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, that's the meeting place of the Jews, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, alright, but persuade them about what? Aha. Uh -huh. We get a little more clarity if we hop over to the letter that Paul wrote the Corinthian church that he founded on this missionary journey. And Paul explicitly says this in his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Again, David Guzik is just nailing it. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Everywhere he went, it was the gospel. 
The church is built upon the gospel. The fact that Jesus was actually killed, actually resurrected, and is the only way for men to be reconciled to God, and this never changes. This is the foundation that he built every church in the world on that he started. This is interesting, because some people challenge this very point. I mean, people will like to grab certain parts of Christianity, do they not? And some people say, well, I, I'm a Christian, well, do you believe that Jesus really lived? And they're like, oh, no, not really. It's like, I'm a Christian, well, do you believe Jesus actually rose from the dead? Like, oh, no, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe in the supernatural aspects of it. I just, you know, I believe in the moral code. I think that's what it's all about. It's interesting that that's not what it's all about. For Paul, when he was starting churches, it was first and always about a real Jesus that really died and was really resurrected so that you can be reconciled to God. And if you don't have that, you don't have Christianity, and you don't have a church. This has to be the starting point. Is that a, a sharp enough point to put on that? Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right, moving on. Let's do a variable. Here's an interesting one. Should be obvious. But setting is a variable. If setting was not a variable, they'd always be hanging out in Jerusalem, and Jesus would have never said, go into all the world. The setting that he's presenting the gospel has to change. He's a missionary for crying out loud. So let's look at some of these settings, shall we? And just see how different they were. So we have this town that we just mentioned called Philippi. There were so few Jews in Philippi, they didn't even have a synagogue. Now, it wasn't a very small town. It was a pretty good-sized city, but there weren't very many Jews there. So, actually, Paul had to go and meet by the river to find a place of prayer. But what it did have was a lot of Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers who had just fought in the wars, I believe, Mark Antony and Julius Caesar and Octavian and all those guys had just had their big dust up, you know, and it's all gotten settled. And a lot of the legionnaires would settle in Philippi because they could have a nice kind of country existence and retire there and live in relative comfort. So when we think of Philippi as a setting, I want you guys to think of Florida. All right? Because it's a retirement home. But remember, it's an ancient military Florida. All right? So I want you to get a good visual. Everybody's got that? He's got the hat, the spear. So Philippi, ancient military Florida. That guy's got a pretty good back, by the way, for a gray-haired old dude. I hope I look that dude. I'm that old. All right, moving on. Athens. A place of learning and snobbery long past its prime. Athens was the place to go for philosophers a couple hundred years before Paul got there. But they still clung on to that tradition. Right? Later on, they'll say that the people really just spend their time talking about new ideas and milling around. So when we think of a place of learning and snobbery long past its prime, let's think of Harvard. Harvard is a good place to be go for, for Evans. I'm sorry, shameless Jeff. It's only because I couldn't get in. <laughs> so we got Florida, we got Harvard. And let's think of Corinth. Now Corinth was a very big city. It was a port city, and this place was happening, man. I mean, there was this narrow little portion of land. You could almost cut a canal straight through, and eventually they did. But at this point in history, the Corinthians made a boatload of money unloading ships on one side of Corinth and running the merchandise over the other side and loading it up onto other ships. They also produced some bronze. I think it was actually called Corinthian bronze. These people knew how to do it, man. A lot of people passing through, a lot of trade, a lot of money, a lot of nefarious, shady stuff, gambling. We don't 
don't have to think too hard about what to compare Corinth to. I think this is a pretty good representation. It's kind of like the Las Vegas that actually did end up producing something. So we have Florida, Harvard, and Las Vegas. Maybe those are too extreme, but maybe not. I mean, cultures vary a lot from city to city. Travel wasn't as easy. You know, different towns had a definite, distinct flair. And so Paul had to go into all these places and figure out how to do the gospel there. But the setting changes. It's a variable. Guys, if the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, he intends the gospel to be preached to everyone, everywhere on it. And that means the settings that the gospel is presented in are going to vary widely. Widely. Some places that God wants the gospel to go will think this place is all right. And some places God wants the gospel to go will say, can't you send someone else? Remember Paul's prayer from last week? But Lord, I should stay here in Jerusalem. Everybody knows me here. My testimony's real effective right here in Jerusalem. And God's like, no, no, you need to get out there and go to Greece. So, variable, setting. Constant, the gospel, variable, setting. Let's move on to another variable. I'm making up for last week when I spoke for 45 minutes, I think. This week's going to be a little bit shorter. But... With a varied setting and a varied culture, the places that you're going to go, will come a varied delivery. A varied delivery. So let's look at some stories. It is officially story time. We're going to flesh out what happened in the places that Paul went. In Philippi, this is very interesting. Here's some bullet points. First of all, as I said, in the uh, Legionnaires, Florida, of Philippi, there are no synagogues to go to because there are so few Jews. So he went to the river to find a place of prayer. And he actually would continuously go back to the river. It says that he met some women there. Now he's preaching to women at the river. That's kind of a little different for the ancient world. But he kept on doing his thing, talking to the women at the river, getting some converts. And then we have this demon that shows up. And this demon is doing this horrible thing. This demon is saying, hey, these people are messengers from the Most High God telling you to, telling you to win and be saved. That almost seems helpful, does it not? But there's this wonderful passage of Scripture that says... Paul got so irritated, he cast out the demon. I love the fact that God can work through irritation. I love the fact that he basically, you know, the devil was acting up and he kind of kicked the dog is the way it was. It was like, get out of here. Stop it. Stop bothering me. But when that happened, gosh, wouldn't you know it, this lady was a slave who earned her masters a good living through fortune telling. So the master realizes that he's basically been cheated out of all this money. So they grab Paul and his buddy Silas and they drag him before the authorities and they say, this man's really bad, and he's telling us things that aren't Roman, and they're like, whoa, that's crazy. Have them beaten immediately. So they strip him down in front of everybody, severely beat him, throw him in jail. They tell the jailer, keep these people securely locked up. So your Bible will probably say something like, the jailer took him into the inner cell and fastened them in the stocks, which sounds pretty innocuous. The inner cell was the torture chamber. They take them into the torture chamber, horribly beaten, probably still naked. They're praying and singing songs to God. Midnight, earthquake comes. Okay? Earthquake opens the doors of the prison and their chains miraculously fall off. The jailer wakes up, not to the singing and the prayers, but to the earthquake, is afraid everybody's gone, is about to kill himself with his sword because in Roman culture, if you lost a prisoner, you were going to be killed. It was your life for their life. And you were going to be killed in probably some not nice ways for the entertainment of other people. Gross. So the jailer's like, we're taking care of this right now. And he pulls out his sword to do the deed, and Paul shouts out, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. 
jailer falls down at his feet, says, what do we have to do to be saved? And Paul says, you believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And then it says he takes him to his house, washes his wounds, they preach the gospel to his house, they get saved, and they get baptized. Hold on. Are they still in the torture chamber when the guy takes them out and takes them to the house to wash their wounds? So they're out, right? They can make a run for it. They don't. Then they get baptized. And the guy's ancient Roman bathtub? Where do you think they did that? Probably the river. Did they leave the jail and go down to the river in the middle of the night so these prisoners could baptize this guy? And then they go back? We know they go back because in the morning the jailer goes into the inner cell and says, Hey, good news. The uh, city magistrate said you can leave. And now, only now, does Paul say, I don't think so. They refused to leave for the third time. Could have left with the doors, could have left when they were outside baptizing them, could leave now, but they're like, eh, it's a little thing. You stripped us naked and beat us publicly, and we're kind of Roman citizens. Huge deal. You did not treat a Roman citizen that way. And in this town, a lot of those retired military people probably earned their citizenship through serving in the military. Roman citizenship was probably a gigantic deal in Philippi. Massive. It was probably very patriotic. They probably all love their citizenship. The city officials freak out. Paul says, we're not leaving until they come get us. He has the city officials go into the torture chamber and escort them out and basically beg them to leave town. And then they visit the believers that they've made and they, they skip out of town. So, how do you rate that? I think that's pretty good, don't you? I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, I'm going to give it a perfect. I'm going to slap a big old perfect rubber stamp on it. And I'll tell you why I think that was perfect. Perfect experience, perfect delivery of the gospel, perfectly following the Lord's Spirit. It was perfect because it was Philippi, and that's where they were, and that's the way it went. And they followed the Lord's leading. We don't want this spirit around, even though it seems to be helping. We're going to cast it out. Looks like a miracle for our escape. Doors are open, chains fall off. Mm, nope, we're going to stay here. Thank God wants us to sit right here in prison. Right now we're out of the prison, we're baptizing the jailer. Maybe we should convince him to let us go. Mm, nope, seems right to go right back into prison and let him fatness, fasten us back up. None of this seems to make sense. But it was the perfect way for Paul and Silas to present the gospel in Philippi. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Let's move on. So they leave Florida and they go to Harvard. Athens. <laughs> now, there's actually kind of a ruckus in one of the smaller towns they visited on the way. So Paul is actually sent to Athens by himself. He is broless, okay? He has the Holy Spirit, which is good. He doesn't have Silas and Timothy's hanging out at this point too. So Silas and Timothy are, are back in Berea and he's in Athens by himself. So this is an interesting one because he can preach in the synagogue. They had a synagogue in Athens. He liked going to the synagogues first. This was his regular practice, okay? He believed he should preach to the Jews first. The Jews met on Saturday in the synagogue. He'd go there. But usually he waited about six days, right? Until the next Saturday. It's usually six days between Saturdays. But in Athens, he didn't have to. In Athens, it says he preached in the marketplace and talked to whoever was there all the time. Why? Because in Athens, everyone was talking all the time. That's all they did. They talked about new ideas, they talked about philosophy, you know, they kind of just sat around and this is what they did, just one big long day talking about stuff. So Paul capitalizes on this and just preaches all the time. And he gets a reputation, not as a brilliant theologian, 
but as a rambler or a babbler. And I, I looked in my study Bible, and that word actually means seed picker. It's an insult. It's talking about the loafer who just kind of hangs around the marketplace and hears the really smart people talking, and then just parrots what the really smart people said. It's these bits and pieces and fractured parts of different philosophies that don't make any sense. So they're saying, this guy's a, he's a seed picker, man. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, he, you know, he says something that sounds good, but he's got no grasp, right? No grasp of big philosophies. But he succeeds in getting the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers to debate with him, and that gets him a spot to go to Mars Hill, the Areopagus, which sounds to me kind of like the peer-reviewed journal of the time. You know, they're going to bring him up to the Areopagus. The intellectuals are going to listen to him, and they're going to kind of pass judgment on his ideas. So they bring him up there, they give him a game court, intellectually, so to speak, and they say, hey, present your ideas to us. And he launches on an epic, epic dissertation, this amazingly delivered oratory, which shows them that he is no seed picker. I mean, if you study it out, he's showing Epicureans, he understands their philosophy, he's showing the Stoics, he understands their philosophy, he's showing them there's some roots of neo-gnostic ideas in there, and he's like, yep, I get you guys too, this is true, this is not, this is true, this is not, I believe this, I don't believe this, and he's, it's brilliant, it really is brilliant, and it shows how smart Paul is, but, you know, gosh, he mentioned something they just can't stand, and that's the resurrection of the dead. He never actually gets around to mentioning the name of Jesus in the oratory. You can feel it building. Read it. It's like an intro. And he says, God has proven that there's this one guy he's going to judge the, the world, world by. And he proved it by raising him from the dead. And you can feel him just about to say, that man is Jesus of Nazareth. But the minute he says, raise him from the dead, they're done. says some people sneered at him. Some people laughed. Some people said, yeah, well, well, we'll hear you again on this. But a few believed, a few, one of which was one of the, the Areopagus kind of intellectual figures. So he did win over some people, didn't win over a lot of the people. A lot of people probably left thinking he was, in fact, a seed picker after all, talking about resurrection from the dead. And then he's basically dismissed. We don't hear a lot out of that after that. It just kind of fades away, it leaves Corinth. Not even a horrible beating. So is that kind of a disappointment? No, man, I think that's actually perfect. I think it's an A+. Plus. <laughs> Good job, Paul. I mean, no, you didn't cast out any demons or get thrown in any torture chambers, but I reckon that was exactly the way it was supposed to go, and that was the best way to handle it because he was in Corinth. Excuse me, Athens. I said that so confidently, too. He was in Athens. Settings change. Delivery methods change. Let's look at Las Vegas here. So he's in Florida, goes to Harvard, and now he's going to Vegas. His head must have been spinning. No doubt, because America hadn't even been discovered yet. So he's in Corinth. This place is different again. Now keep in mind where he's at. He is at the seat of debauchery in the ancient world. It really is. Everybody knew what went on in Corinth. And even people that weren't saints themselves had no problem making fun of Corinth and kind of poking fun at the Corinthian lifestyle. It really was like Las Vegas. There's a, a to Corinthianize men to uh, do immoral things. It was really amazing. So it's well known in the ancient world. Can you imagine how Paul would have felt going into this most pagan city? Probably scared to death would be my, my guess, but maybe he was excited. I don't know, but this place was not what you'd think. Absolutely not. First of all, he has friends there. Either they were converted before or he met them before. We don't know, but there's no conversion story mentioned for Priscilla and Aquila. They seem to be believers who were already solid believers, 
had a house in Corinth, and there were tent makers like Paul. So Paul walks into this crazy city and immediately has a nice place to stay with people that he likes, and he can earn some money on the side. Well, that's different. Then the, the Jews, his own people, the people he was probably counting on to be his moral support in this crazy, weird, pagan, debauchery-filled city, they really give him a lot of flack. And he ends up shaking off his clothes in this dramatic scene, and he's like, I've had enough of you guys. He's like, if you won't listen to me, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to talk to the Gentiles. And he storms out of the synagogue and goes next door to this guy Titus' house. That must have been a scene. Leaves in a huff right next door, 10 feet away. You can probably hear him through the wall. Astounding. <laughs> and then, if that's not good enough, Paul actually gets a message from God in this crazy city. And God basically says, take off your shoes and stay a while, because I have a lot of people in this city. Mm -hmm. That city? That city. God's like, you preach boldly. You tell people about me. No one is going to mistreat you here. And in fact, no one does. He stays there a year and a half. No torture chamber, no horrible beating. At one point, it looks like an angry mob is going to make something materialize. But the proconsul, a guy named Gallio, was like, man, that's not my business. Get out of here. And just like that, it's diffused. Corinth goes really well for Paul for a year and a half. Staying with people he likes. Probably eating on a regular basis. You know, really different from the Apostle Paul. So how do we grade this one? I'm going to slap a P on there, man. I think that was perfect. Good job, Paul. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's perfect because that was Corinth. And the settings change. Context changes. Delivery methods change. Experiences change. He's still constantly following the Holy Spirit. But that, man, that was different in a good way. Definitely not Philippi. The gospel may be constant, but there is plenty of room to be creative and led by the Holy Spirit when it comes to delivering the gospel. And even you might be surprised at how it goes. I'm sure Paul was a lot. All right. Last constant. This is our last point. The gospel is constant, but the setting and the delivery will change. One other constant that we don't talk about, I don't think, enough, and we don't need to be afraid of it, but we do need to acknowledge it, is opposition. Do you know why you will always have opposition in the Christian life? Because you have an opponent. There are principalities and powers. The devil is real. This is part of the faith. It's not antiquated. It's not archaic. It's not silly. It's not backwoods. You know, if we believe in a real God, it should not be difficult for us to believe in a real devil that really does not like God. Can't hurt God, so what's he going to do? He's going to try to hurt us. Always opposition because we always have an opponent. No, he's not as strong as God. I'm glad you brought it up. Yes, God said he defeated the world. But he also said in this world, you'll have trouble. So here's a brief synopsis of some of the trouble that Paul ran into in the book of Acts. In Paphos, he was opposed by a sorcerer. This was his first stop. How'd you like that? He's trying to witness to the leader of the city, and a sorcerer comes out and is trying to oppose him. And they have like a supernatural showdown, and Paul kicks his butt. It's awesome. <laughs> then they go to Antioch, and the Jewish opposition runs him out of town. And when I say runs him out of town, don't think that the Apostle Paul would be dismayed by sideways glances and sarcastic comments. They want to kill him. They're going to kill the guy, so he has to leave. And Iconium, 
he has to leave again to avoid being killed. In Lystra, he's stoned, and they actually may have succeeded in killing Paul in Lystra. He's laying down, the believers gather around. The scriptures are a little ambiguous. He's stoned, they drag him out of the city, supposing he's dead, quote-unquote, and then miraculously he gets back up. You're the Apostle Paul, you've just been stoned by an angry mob and drug out of the city. You get up, what's the first thing you do? Well, Paul walks back into the city <laughs> to make sure that the people that he's converted aren't too freaked out by the fact that they just stoned him almost to death. All right, so anyway, he's, he's really something. And then he goes to Derby. At Derby, there's nothing recorded, but as we'll see in a minute, that doesn't mean nothing rough happened. Then he goes to Philippi, and we talked about that angry mob, terrible beating, prison, torture chamber. Thessalonica, after that, he has to run away from another giant angry mob. And this one is so angry, that when he goes to Berea, the mob follows him. And they try to stir up trouble in that town. And again, we're not talking about sideways glances and sarcasm. We're talking about, kill that guy. He got away from us, you guys take him out. Then he goes to Athens, and he's laughed at, which, you know, I don't know, maybe that hurt worse than the rocks. Paul is a very brilliant guy, and they think he's an idiot. So his pride is attacked there. Ouch. Then he goes to Corinth, and even though nothing bad happens to him, his own people, no doubt the people he thought were going to be his rock, you know, the people he could kind of go to for moral support in this crazy city, they don't want him there. Wow. Now let's shrink that and let's look at the total list from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul also recounts being flogged, lashed five times, beaten three times with rods, stoned, imprisoned lots of times, shipwrecked three times, and then in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. That's some opposition. You're going to have opposition because you have an opponent. And guess what? Just like your experiences change from place to place, and the delivery might change from place to place, as sure as the gospel is Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, there will be opposition. There just will be. And that has to be dealt with. So let's recap. Oh, that did not have a stamp for that one. I was going to say perfect, and I was like, no, that's not perfect. That's definitely imperfect. This is definitely a result of the fall. It's nasty. And I couldn't find a stamp that said, unfortunate. That's a very difficult graphic to locate. I will use it if you find it. Email it to me. <laughs> this is why there's so much opposition. We already quoted this verse, but I want to quote it again in light of Paul's experience, okay? This is what Paul knew he was bringing to every new place he went, whether it's Florida or Harvard or Las Vegas. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So they're both going to be disappointed. Neither one of them are going to find what they're looking for with this message. For the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom Christ is called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He knew wherever he went, he was bringing something that was inherently offensive. The gospel is good news, but it is inherently offensive and it inspires a strong reaction both for and against. Look at the people, a lot of them, that responded to Paul's message, and the scriptures will say something like, the Lord opened so-and-so's ears, or so-and-so's heart was opened to receive God, Paul's message. That's because the message sounds crazy to one group and the absolute stupidest thing you could ever imagine to another group. This is why Paul's own people had a hard time with them, and so did the Gentiles. 
There was something in the message for everyone to have a hard time with, guaranteed every night. And yet, for those whose hearts are open, for those who respond when the Lord knocks, suddenly it's the most wonderful thing in the world. So you have people willing to kill about it and people willing to die for it in the same place. The gospel is constant. The location, the delivery, have fun with that. But the constant is also opposition. Let's recap at the end here. The gospel is forever and always about the death and resurrection of Jesus. The church must be founded on this. If you are in a church that does not have this as its unifying fact, this is the foundation. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Real death, real resurrection, only way to be reconciled by God. I would argue you do not have a real church. You can call itself whatever it wants. But this is the foundation of the church that God is sending out to change the world. Amen. Settings change. Delivery methods change. Opposition is inevitable. Are any of these difficult for you? That's the final question. Imagine if you were Paul. He's just been knocked off his horse. The guy Ananias has sent to tell him to receive his sight. But Ananias is told something else by the Lord when he goes to get Paul his vision back. God says, I'm going to tell him, either directly the Lord's going to tell him, or maybe he told Ananias to tell him, don't worry, Ananias, I'm going to tell him how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. Now, I do think that Paul was unique. But as I've said before, the Christian life isn't guaranteed suffering all the time, but it does require a willingness to do whatever is necessary. It is not a promise of a miserable life. I think God actually wants us to enjoy our life. Is that crazy? Does that sound nuts? I mean, I think God was happy that he had a nice place to stay in Corinth. I think God was happy for Paul, but we have a mission only. So we need to be willing to do whatever is necessary. Do you struggle with the fact that the gospel is only forever and always Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected? In your heart, do you wish it was something else that's more palatable, something less offensive, something that would inspire maybe not quite so strong a reaction for or against. Are there seats of compromise? If there are, just acknowledge that before the Lord. The culture is pouring that on us all the time. Talk about God all you want, but don't talk about Jesus. If you talk about Jesus, don't talk about the cross. And if you talk about the cross, don't tell me I have to go that way. You do. Maybe you struggle with the setting. Some of us go lots of places, but the gospel doesn't come with us. Some of us go to church and the gospel comes. Maybe we go to visit family in the gospel country. When we go to work, we accidentally left the gospel in the car. Where we go, the gospel needs to come as well. Delivery methods change. Are you a track-loving Christian? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you if you went to Awanas. God bless you if you know the Romans Road. Awesome. But are you resistant to different methods of sharing the faith? That might be a challenge. And lastly, is opposition a deal breaker for you? You know what? I think that this is actually the least challenging one in the whole list. Because God is faithful to give you what you need to bear up under it in the moment. I think that it requires courage to step out, courage to surrender to the Lord, and I really believe, I have to believe, I choose to believe that should persecution ever come, I will not have what I need to endure. I will be given what I need to endure. And what's required for me is a willingness. A willingness. Thank you guys. I'm going to give to Shamrock to close.